This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths. Enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. At WellBridge, wellness is an integral part of any treatment plan. A sound body and engaged spirit are essential to a healthy mind. The patient's needs are met through recreational programs customized to their needs. Their wellness center offers a variety of services, including yoga, massage therapy, fitness rooms, and therapy pools. WellBridge provides holistic and individualized treatment. The goal is to get patients back on the road to a healthy, productive life. Valeria interviews Dr. Christopher Yadrin. He is the CEO of WellBridge, a licensed clinical professional counselor, a certified alcohol and drug counselor, innovative strategist, and speaker. Christopher Yadrin, PhD, is a mission-focused executive with 25 years of nonprofit leadership and behavioral health care experience. He has served in numerous leadership capacities throughout his career, and his capabilities include extensive clinical and behavioral expertise, robust budgetary proficiency, and strong interpersonal experience. Yadrin is an innovative strategist adroit at building sustainable patient services while leveraging philanthropic initiatives to advance care and education. Yadrin is a stalwart leader who is passionate about reversing the stigma of addiction, helping individuals to seek the help they need to recover. As CEO, Dr. Yadrin's responsibilities span both strategic and operational areas, building upon the current strategic vision, branding, marketing, and business plan, and evolving all functional areas of the organization towards goals of delivering exceptional patient experiences while achieving overall business success. Yadrin received his doctorate degree from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and his master's degree in counseling psychology at Loyola University in Chicago. He is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a certified alcohol and drug counselor. Yadrin often speaks at conferences and workshops on addiction and the family, counselor training and development, and organizational leadership. Meet Dr. Christopher at wellbridge.org. Here's the interview with Dr. Christopher Yadrin. In your own words, who is Christopher Yadrin? Well, that feels like a, a big question to try to tackle on a podcast. First of all, thanks for having me today. Um, I currently am the CEO of Wellbridge Addiction Treatment and Research. Um, my background is in psychology. I have a PhD in counseling psychology and for a good part of my life for 25 uh, or more years professionally. I've spent most of that time working directly with individuals and families and groups um, around mental health in general and then quite a bit of work specifically in terms of um, helping support individuals find paths to um, recovery and healing and wholeness uh, wholeness. Um, as, as they work through um, concerns regarding addiction and, and, and the behaviors and the harms associated. Um, in the last number of years, uh, last five to 10 years especially, um, my work has been more focused exclusively on leadership and organizational development and management um, for behavioral health care organizations. And um, I've shifted a bit at this point in my life to really focusing on developing staff and people um, who have a commitment to um, and function as healers themselves and creating organizations that have a very positive culture um, for staff uh, and and for, for people who want to serve that way um, and help people with behavioral health and specifically substance use issues. So that's what I've been doing lately. Um, I'm uh, 
you know, personally, I'm just very pleased at this point in my life to with my my partner and, and spouse, my wife uh, Megan, I and uh, my daughter Ellie. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's a good place to be personally too. Mm, I love to hear that, Chris. That's what we all want to say, right? I'm in a good place. It feels good to be me. Sometimes we want it to be a destination, a place where we just stay. <laughs> we right. get there and we stay there forever. But it doesn't quite happen because life um, life changes. And that's uh, such an interesting adventure as I see mm-hmm. it. I have a, another question, initial question. Before I have so many questions for you here, the, initial, the open ones. But before I ask those questions, let me go back. I know you're not working as a counselor at this time. But you're still working in the field of mental health and helping others uh, with addiction uh, indirectly. What inspired you to become a, a counselor in the first place? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I grew up in a home where um, drinking and um, substance use created a lot of conflict and uh, difficult, challenging experiences as a very young child. I'm the oldest in my family. Um, my parents were very young when I was born, so um, there were times, and this is not meant to sound disparaging toward my parents, but even as a young child where I might have been um, the most responsible one in the house that day. So I think from a very early place in my life, I was uh, conditioned, if you will, to um, be oriented toward um, helping others, playing the role of a peacemaker, um, being a resource, and then deriving a certain level of, I think, satisfaction and um, fulfillment as a result of doing that. Um, I followed that course um, for, um, you know, uh, for for quite a way into my professional life, and uh, I, I I'm 51 now. I I almost I came to a point of burnout fairly early, around 30 years old, because I don't know if I was fully aware of how conditioned I was to do that, um, without any regard for my own personal boundaries, my true motivations, um, the ability to be more altruistic in terms of giving and supportive. Um, and so long answer, but, uh, it's very wrapped up with my personal life. And I think over the years, though, I've separated that out and, and I think come at it from a much more centered and, and helpful place at this point. Yeah. I love to hear that. And it's, um, interesting to hear you saying that, especially the part of being a peacemaker, because I remember doing the same thing around my family growing up with a lot of dysfunction, if I can use that word, a lot of confusion, really. That's what it was. It's very confusing to see the, the violent behaviors. And and then, yeah, I was trying to um, make everyone feel better. But then I was a child, and that's not really something that children should be doing. <laughs> that didn't lead me to addiction, substance abuse. But I remember having a lot of addictive behaviors, per se, because I didn't feel loved, then I was looking for that love out there uh, when I left my family. Then I was looking for, in a, in a very powerful way, in that to me, it's the, the more I hear the description of addiction, I see, wow, it's something that controls us. So I felt controlled by those feelings that I had to be uh, feel loved by somebody else. So the question to you is, is that something that you experienced as well? It could be work too. I I became that way too. (laughs) Workaholic, some people call it. I think fundamental to the definition of addiction is loss of control. Like, as you mentioned a few moments ago, and people can become, uh, can have that experience of a loss of control, um, or where there's a level of preoccupation and the role that either a substance or a behavior takes in a person's life becomes all-consuming. Um, and there's that, that, that fundamental element of a lack of control. And whether that's relationships or love or sexuality, it can be a substance like um, drugs or alcohol. Um, and it can be in relationship to, um, to certainly uh, things like work or um, gambling or, or many, many different things. Um, obviously the way that we interact with these things has a physiological impact, but there are strong psychological pulls in terms of the needs that they meet uh, and the role that they play in our lives. It's fascinating to see how everything's connected, 
the body, the mind, and how it's sometimes it's very challenging to have clarity, to see with clarity what's happening. And that, that took me many years. So another open question is about mental health. What is mental health from your perspective? What is to be mentally healthy? What does it look like? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I, yeah, um, sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> it's, it's provocative in a lot of ways because I think it includes um, so much in the way that we think about mental health. I mean, typically the connotation of mental has more of a, the, the connotation is more aligned with um, how we think or our thought life. Um, but I think mental health, um, I also like to think in terms of wellness or behavioral health, although that term also feels slightly reductionistic to me. Almost any ter term feels slightly reductionistic because we're really whole people. So um, are the kinds of thoughts that we think um, positive and affirmative of ourselves and of others? Um, when we experience emotions, are we able to experience those emotions with a certain level of um, appropriate like awareness and detachment so we're not over-identified with those things, but we can recognize the role that they play in our lives? Um, and even, you know, negative, um, quote-unquote, negative emotions. I mean, the experience of sadness is an indicator of things that we value in our lives that we perceive to be at risk or perhaps we've lost. Um, so um, when I think about mental health, I think about the connection between our behaviors, our body, our thoughts, our emotions, and is there um, a, um, a, a positive way of being in the world for both ourselves and our orientation towards others? So mm. uh, that's the way I would frame it. Yeah, I love that. It resonates true to me the positivity without being, uh, if I can use, um, deluded. <laughs> I remember well, being that way. <laughs> Very much seeing, trying as hard as I could to see everything, myself and ev everything and everyone, the whole world in a positive light. Mm -hmm. But then it was not really the reality and I was often re-traumatized. Right. So that's interesting to even kind of talk about these things because positivity, it's something to be defined, right? Chris, by ourselves too. We, sure. we need to make sure not to create our own ideas of what life is or, or try to believe things that are not real per se. Right. Yeah. In a, the research, research actually shows in a, inauthentic positivity is actually harmful to one's mental health or mental well-being. So if I'm genuinely need to or perhaps ought to um, experience something that feels um, painful or challenging um, to act as if that isn't real or to simply try to put a positive spin isn't actually very beneficial. So I think part of mental health means that when I face challenges or things that I don't understand, things that are outside of my control, is my orientation to those things um, such that it's it's a path that's leading me in a constructive and beneficial way. It may or may not be positive in a sense of how it feels, but it's positive in a sense of the um, the growth and the um, the benefit to myself um, or to others in the process or to the community I'm a part of. That's a beautiful way of seeing, perceiving this reality. And that makes me think about spirituality. Do you have any spiritual views of yourself in the world of life itself and also practices? Um, that's also a very interesting question for me. Um, I started out um, the very early part of my career. I went to seminary, a Christian seminary, Presbyterian actually, um, and became a Presbyterian minister. Oh, wow. Oh, I and, didn't know that. <laughs> ah, surprise. Um, not that I would reduce my sense of spirituality <laughs> to religious practice right. or religious right. affiliation. Um, but uh, that's where I began in life um, professionally. And uh, there's a lot of story or narrative back in, in the background. I don't know, uh, given our time today, but... Um, I found that initially I was in an environment, though, that I found to be somewhat uh, limiting or restrictive in that experience. Um, and um, so uh, as I 
as I shifted in my professional identity from an ordained minister uh, now many years ago to a professional counselor, my sense of spirituality relative to openness, acceptance, um, uh, connection um, really dramatically changed in my life. So um, my spirituality at this point, I would define in, in much more humanistic terms, you know, Words like acceptance are fundamental to me versus um, right or wrong and um, sort of the shame, guilt structures that are oftentimes not for all, but for some, the experience of, of some when it comes to more religious versus spiritual um, frameworks. But um, I, uh, I, I, it's been a, a, a path <laughs> leading towards openness, acceptance and um, a, a different way of being in the world than um, try to find sort of a singular truth and getting it right and being mm. um, being either good or bad. Mm, right, I love that. That the, the word openness, yeah, that to me includes acceptance. That's a big one. Once we are open, then acceptance arises almost um, naturally. It has been my experience. So that sounds really positive <laughs> in that Absolutely. sense of healthy positive. Yeah, yeah. Do you use the word God? Oh, that's something that you reframe and you, you stay away from in my work with others or in, in general in general um, um not necessarily excuse me um i suppose earlier in in my life probably far more often uh it's a it's a term that is so um full and uh I don't know if loaded is the right word, but you know, to use, if I use the word God and you use the word God, the chances of us land same on the same planet, um, so to speak, um, could be rather challenging unless we have the opportunity to discuss the nuance in the sense of how we might be, be framing that. There are people in recovery, um, who, where that often becomes a stumbling point, um, in recovery from addiction and certainly the utilization of traditional and 12-step communities and um, the 12 steps makes references to God quite often. In that framework, it's the God of your understanding. For some people who identify more in a atheistic or um, agnostic framework where it's very hard for them to get there, you know, there's uh, you know, a common well-known acronym um, where reframing the word God is just simply good orderly direction. So whether it's a higher power, a God of your understanding, um, a sense of what might be good orderly direction for well-being and health in your life, um, and then other, you know, very clear historical and religious traditions which inform that word. So I, I'm probably careful if I use it just because yeah. it feels like a pretty big word to use. Oh, I have another question for you, open question, but before that, because we are talking about spirituality, I want to um, mention that you are the CEO of Wellbridge, so I'll be asking you a lot more questions about the company. Sure. But an open question now, do you use spiritual methods within the approach at Wellbridge? I would say absolutely. Um, again, even the word spirituality can be hard to um or it means many things to different people. So I would say we use spiritual methods in a sense of, um, in the most general sense, we want to treat the spirit of a person and their sense of human dignity and personhood uh, in a fundamental way. Um, also, addiction tends to lead to alienation, isolation, versus recovery is about belonging and connection. So helping people find ways to reestablish connection and create belonging and community, I think, is a component of at least humanistic spirituality. Um, I've also worked in environments um, years ago um, where people with addiction needs and uh, psychiatric or behavioral health needs um, were often treated with a great deal of um, stigma and disrespect, even in medical and professional environments or environments that purport to be therapeutic or healing um, environments. And so I think coming to a place like Wellbridge, and Wellbridge is a very intentionally designed place, even in terms of the physical space in which we invite people to come and to heal and to grow. Um, there's a way in which we're uh, inviting people here uh, 
um, to be met with kindness, respect, dignity, compassion. That I I would truly believe um, meets people at a level of the, of the human spirit in a pretty fundamental way. And that answers my question about spirituality. <laughs> That's how okay. I see it. Right. That's beautiful. Thank you, Chris. And another open question. I have too many. I have to skip them, some of them. But for now, what are some of the most common misconceptions about addiction that you have come across? That's a great question. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, one of the things that's problematic about addiction, um, there's two things that come to mind. One of the most common perceptions of addiction is that it is somehow within a person's control, um, that it's... Uh, it's really an issue of irresponsibility or poor choices. Um, but addiction, um, or a, if someone is diagnosed with truly with a substance use disorder, the very nature of the diagnosis or the very nature of the condition is a loss of control. It's represented by progressive neurological, physiological changes, oftentimes psychological and de developmental challenges as well as a result of um, time spent under the influence and the impact of these substances on a person's life. And so then, by, as I said earlier on, on the podcast, the very nature of, of addiction is, is a loss of control. And one of the most common misperceptions is that um, if people really want change badly enough, um, they would just make different choices, but no one welcomes or wants addiction um, into their lives. So I think that's um, one of the biggest misconceptions. I think from a treatment standpoint, one of the biggest problems or misconceptions is that um, there's a one-size-fits-all approach for people. Um, so, for example, people might be familiar with, uh, you know, like a 28-day program for rehab or rehabilitation. It's uh, yeah, um, Increasingly, this is changing, but certainly in the past, most programs were fairly programmatic. And it's, it's, it's not a very personalized or sophisticated way to approach the illness or the condition. If, um, if one of us had cancer and we went to the oncologist and the oncologist prescribed the same treatment, regardless of the stage of the cancer, the location, the type of cancer, um, and the way that it was impacting us personally, we all just received the same dose of chemotherapy or the same surgery. It would be, um, obviously clearly inappropriate. When someone it needs to be treated for addiction, you need to take into account um, what are the positive uh, supports in their system? Um, what are their positive coping me mechanisms that exist? What's their unique? Uh, what are the unique substances that have been impacting their lives? Um, how does this take in shape in their own life in a personalized way? And so some person, you know, some people might need inpatient and some people might need outpatient treatment. Some people need um, significant detoxification. Others just need much longer psychosocial interventions over a period of time. But bottom line is it's important to personalize care mm -hmm. and not just use a one size fits all approach. I'm not familiar with the, um, the health care system in the country and how it works, but I have heard a lot about it. That's one of the biggest complaints for a lot, some people that I have interviewed in my own personal life around me, that it's just too generalized and there's too many, there are too many rules and protocols. So before they get to the end of all that, the patient is actually in a much worse condition. So there's too many steps, too many protocols to follow and not enough I would call it intuition, that human connection, just seeing deeper how unique everyone is or each case is. So I love that your company has this vision. That's really wonderful to hear. Another question I have, oh yeah, earlier, you about the misconceptions of addiction, you mentioned, yeah, the judgment on behavior and kind of assuming that somebody can change, can choose better. <laughs> But that's very humbling to me because I have kind of seen, I have actually applied this my entire life <laughs> as, as a general rule, not to judge anyone because we don't know. We simply don't know. Even when they're behaving in a very violent way, doing horrible things, there's always room for curiosity and observation and um, understanding. 
that's something that really speaks to me deeply as a human being. So I'm glad you mentioned that too, because we don't know what other people are going through. Sometimes it's it's just a a brain dysfunction, an imbalance. We don't know. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I I really appreciate your perspective on that also. There's um, an ancient quote, um, um, nothing, uh, what is it? Nothing human is alien to me. Um, If you've, you know, maybe it's become more common now, but, uh, and I I forget um, the source of that, but I, I think it's the idea, at least the way I understand that is, you know, if I'm, if I had your circumstances and I were in the exact same place, I might choose very similarly. And so who am I to judge, right? Which I think is your point. Um, and then from an addiction standpoint, there really are changes that occur that, that, that make the choices pretty impossible. Um, you know, I mean, if you imagine, um, you know, you're riding a a top, you know, of a, of a large animal, like a horse, or, you know, if you're in Asia and you're riding on top of an elephant and suddenly the elephant or the horse, um, became frightened and, and went running wildly, right. In a dangerous way. Um, there's really no way you could, you would be powerless to stop um, that from, from happening right until, until that changed in uh, through other circumstances. And I, there's ways in which um, certainly we need to be responsible for choices and engage treatment. And it's not an all or nothing, but the way addiction functions, um, it, really powerlessness really is at the root of it. So for people to come and to say, I need help to be surrounded with um, a therapeutic community, um, to begin to learn skills, to manage um, concerns and feelings and emotions and challenges differently. It, it, it's just, it's very hard to overcome alone. And so the importance of community is, is really, and, and having a strong support system is really important. So going back to Wellbridge, talk to me a bit more about the treatments. I know it's a, you have been talking about already, actually, but I'd love to know more about the specific holistic approach that you offer. And also, what do you treat? I read on your website, substance use disorder, and then also co-occurring psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. uh, like so many. And then um, you have all this list of of disorders, bipolar disorder, a borderline depression, eating disorder, and many others. So I didn't know that. It makes a lot of sense to me, but these psychiatric disorders, they are consequences of substance use disorder. Is that correct, uh, Chris? I would say um, yes and no, or perhaps yes and yes, depending if I'm recalling the frame, the framing of the questions correctly. It's um, I think sometimes individuals can develop an addiction in its own right, and it may or may not lead to other problems, but for some individuals, that addiction becomes compromising or challenging in a way that other forms of mental illness or mental disorders develop relative to anxiety or depression or other other kinds of things. So, um, and then there are individuals who develop more traditional psychiatric, traditional, but other psychiatric disorders and substances become a way of of coping and managing some of those concerns and uh, may just be a tool for the person to manage those psychiatric symptoms and, and concerns, or it might develop into a true co-occurring um, addiction at the same time, or substance use disorder um, comorbid or alongside of the, um, the psychiatric concern. It, I guess my point is it's a two-way street and um, they really do influence each other. Uh, you take eating disorders, for example, sometimes individuals might use stimulants to um, aid their goals or in, the, the goals or intentions of the eating disorder. Um, there's a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and depression associated with eating disorders. And so sometimes the use of substances becomes compensatory to deal with those strong feelings. Um but, you know, if you're using particular kinds of substances and have an addiction or a substance use disorder, it affects your eating habits and it affects your physiology in a way where, you know, so that's just one example. Um, the, the, the other thing about substance use disorders, um, generally when people begin to use and use regularly in a way that it becomes their true preoccupation, um, their other roles and ability to function become highly compromised. 
um, their ability to, to manage emotions, interpersonal interactions, you know, that goes really offline for a period of time if they're deep into their addiction. So imagine like, you know, uh, you know, imagine a school aged child who, you know, stopped taking math in third grade and then suddenly begins is put into a math class uh, their first year of college and they've missed everything in between. It would feel overwhelming. Um, they wouldn't know what to do. It would be anxiety provoking. So when people start using at a young age, you know, and the average age that people begin using substances, at least in the U.S. domestically, is somewhere around 12 or 13 years old. And as that escalates, they miss out on all of these very formative years in terms of how do I manage my emotions? How do I build healthy relationships? How do I um, address challenges and conflicts? So um, you can get a lot of interaction between behavioral, general behavioral health or psychiatric presentations mixed with substance use. Um, I, you, you, uh, you asked me a question as well about Wellbridge treatment and, yes. and the way we approach it. Do you want me to? Yes, please. I got yes, away a bit on comorbidity and co-occurring disorders, but yeah. Um, yeah. So Wellbridge addiction treatment and research is a 130 bed um, licensed facility um, and joint commission regulated facility on Eastern Long Island in New York. Um, we're a inpatient and residential facility, and we work obviously with a lot of outpatient facilities for the continuity of care. But we have 130 beds here for individuals to come and become stabilized and then um, have additional time in residential treatment to uh, develop the skills and deal with the psychological and social concerns that addiction brings. Um, most people who come here have, um, everyone who comes here has a, a substance use disorder. That's a requirement. And then the vast majority of the individuals who come here have some co-occurring mental health or psychiatric concern relative to anxiety, um, an eating disorder, a you know, form of depression or some other, some other psychiatric or behavioral health concern. Um, the treatment here um, really is intended to be very holistic. Sorry for the pause. I'm getting water there. Um, so um, primarily when people first come to Wellbridge, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of physiological concerns and discomfort and and challenges. So the the first steps are usually more medically oriented with our team of physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants and our nursing team um, to make sure that people have the right medications and the right medical support to begin to heal. Um, as people become more stable in the first week of their treatment physiologically, then they can go on to begin to address some of the psychological and social components of the diagnoses and the concern conditions that they have. And that involves individual and group counseling. It involves being a part of a healthy and sober community. Um, it involves some work with one's family or primary support system. Um, and then we have a lot of supportive therapies and opportunities for people to heal as well beyond those um, medical and psychological and social concerns, just in terms of overall body and, and personal wellness. Um, so we have, um, a, a, you know, the fitness center, we use uh, a create, we have a creative arts building in which we do use art and painting and music um, in, in various therapeutic ways, drum circles, for example. Um, to help people connect and heal in ways that might be less verbal or less analytical. It's certainly very, very accessible for people who, excuse me, need to reconnect with themselves and others in, in ways involving music, the body, body movement, exercise. Um, so there are, are, are a lot of other opportunities that way as well. Yeah, I love to hear that. You said that earlier. So it's um, actually addressing the whole person, how it should be, because that's what we are, <laughs> human beings, whole human beings. Right, right. That's great. And I wanted to correct earlier, my question was meant to actually, I, wanna, I intended to ask that question about the relationship between substance use disorders and psychiatric disorders. But I wanted to ask that question. But I wanted to make the correction that on your website, it's very clear. It's not 
you're not making that relationship really that connection you're just outlining the um what you treat so i for some reason i read co-occurring as co-related or co mm-hmm. for some reason i understood it that way that's um interesting how the brain works sometimes you look at the word and probably I wanted to ask that question, and then it connected everything. How? Yeah, yeah, it's a slightly different nuance, but they can be both occurring or present, and they can be related in terms of the interaction. So I appreciate you thinking about both. Yeah, thank you for that too, for the clarity, and then that I couldn't see it, and then you corrected. There's um, another point that, uh, yeah, I read that on your website too. It reads, we recognize that the family suffers alongside the patient and integrate treatment and support programs for the family. So that caught my attention because I know personally how mental health or having somebody around you that's not mentally well, how can that affect us? I remember being very much affected by not just one person, but two, I think in two cases in my life. So that's really great to see your company doing that too, recognizing that, which is kind of obvious. It was to me, you know, I was not a professional. So when it comes to that, do you also offer, um, you offer treatment for the family too, because from my point of view, from the experiences I had, I needed support, uh, not just support in a way, it seems like I need some sort of um, treatment, perhaps not medication, but meditation or some sort of work. I I needed something, but I was never advised by the professions around me at the time. I think ignoring or avoiding the family would be similar to uh, maybe some of our earlier comments. If someone was experiencing an illness that was affecting both their body and mind or affecting them as a whole person, and we just treated their body, I think we would clearly and more immediately recognize how reductionistic or unfortunate that would be. Um, as human beings, we're fundamentally social creatures or social animals as well. Um, it's, uh, you know, hardly, it's a, it's a highly unique circumstance to be completely isolated. And then if that were to be the case, um, there's a certain lack of wellness or, um, uh, you know, there's, there's something that, that, that seems, um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word, but... Um, unnatural, perhaps. Un- yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, we... You know, and some people want relationship or need relationship more than others, but to be completely devoid of relationship or to always be in the sense of my, my whole identity is um, informed by the other, I think those are two extremes we want to avoid. But as human beings, it's natural to be in relationship. So to avoid the family would be... I'm just as reductionistic or unfortunate. It's an important part. Many treatment centers, again, in the U.S. domestically, um, are offering family education. We do offer family counseling or family therapy where indicated and needed. Um, Every patient who comes here should have, at a minimum, um, again, we personalize care, but as a general rule, um, one individual session a week in addition to all the group sessions, but then one family session a week. Um, and opportunities for families to visit the campus or to be engaged through telehealth or telemedicine formats to be engaged and certainly to be a part of um, the treatment planning and um, in, uh, the treatment process when um, the the identified patient is willing to do so. Um, it's really, it's important. The patient is going to at some point re-engage this family system or support system and It's going to interact with their condition. And so it's important that they're prepared for what to expect and how to be how to navigate that successfully towards wellness and towards health. And then the family, um, like you mentioned a few moments ago, they need support. They need help. Um, One of the unique things about addiction or substance use disorders, I think, is the interaction for if you look at the symptoms of the illness or the condition, um, it's it's almost um, it, it almost uncanny the way family members experience symptoms of substance use in in an almost equivalent or identical way. Obviously, it's not around a substance, but the, the symptomology is almost identical. So, I mean, I could give you some examples. You know, yeah. a person using a substance, or you used um, relationships or or love perhaps before. You know, if if that's my addiction, I'm preoccupied with that. Um, substance or process every day, right? 
if it's if it's love, it's what does this other person think of me? Am I standing? Am I connected? Am I not connected? If it's alcohol, it's when can I drink? I need to drink. I want to drink. People are trying to stop me drinking. I want to drink more. I'm preoccupied. A family member isn't preoccupied with alcohol. They're preoccupied with their loved one, right? So is my loved one alive? Is he is he safe? Is is you know, is she going to come home? Is she not going to come home? Is she going to stop? Is it is it going to be okay? And their their whole lives become oriented around trying to manage and protect and help and uh, this person. So um, I don't mean to belabor the point, but um you know, you can go right down, whether it's preoccupation, anxiety, tolerance, um, so many of these things around addiction affect family members deeply. So we need to provide them help too. Oh, can I throw in one other, thing? I, I, a point I want to make as well. And, um, you know, I sit on the board separate from Wellbridge, the National Association for Children of Addiction. And um, one of the pieces for addiction too, around family that are often um, forgotten are the way it impacts the little kids. So we, you know, oftentimes, <coughs> excuse me, um, we provide some support for um, older children in the family and certainly spouses and partners and um, individuals um, in the family system that make up that group. But um, little kids, you know, three, four, five years old through 12 years old, they get hurt quite a bit by this too. And I think it's important to think about how do we help people talk to their kids in developmentally appropriate ways about their illness? How do we help them think about parenting in ways that they may need help with now that they've um, sought recovery? And then the needs of the kids themselves, they don't have a clinical disorder, but they've been harmed, they've been hurt. So they need to know it's not their fault, that help is available, that um, emotions are okay to feel. And it's, it's uh, I could go on, but I just think that's an important piece of the family. Wow, what's not to love about it? <laughs> yes, taking in consideration everything, just, um, right? That's such a beautiful approach to life in general. I don't separate uh, life in the sense of personal, my personal life and professional life. To me, it's all the same. The right. way I see myself and people around me, the cl people closest to me is the way that I would tend to see others. So... I love the idea that we can begin with ourselves always. And I love the way you speak because I can hear that comes from your understanding of life in yourself. It's a very deep one. It's a very inclusive one. And it's, um, well, healthy and beautiful, I have to say. So thank you, Chris, for being here. I'm honored by that. And thanks for that recognition or for uh, seeing me that way. I appreciate it. Wow, yes, very much. We actually met today to talk about the holidays and how they affect people with addiction issues. So talk to me for a moment about that. Why is that a struggle for some people with addiction problems? The holidays, what is the relationship? I can kind of, I have an idea, but I would love to hear from you more details on that. Sure. Um, it can be challenging for people for a number of reasons. Um, some things that come to mind. So for example, um, we oftentimes think of holidays as very happy times, um, but you know, for individuals who have experienced grief or loss acutely um, and oftentimes or sometimes connected with a holiday, those are very challenging times because those are they're, they're you know, the the um, the pressure, the push is to be happy or to feel positive. But it can be painful for people. And um, sometimes addiction is connected to self-medication or a desire to relieve oneself of of un, uh, of, of emotions that feel hurtful or harmful. Another thing about uh, holidays that are challenging of uh, a lot of our holidays are centered around eating and drinking and drinking particular um, um, alcohol. And, um, you know, the healthy, appropriate use of alcohol is, is one thing. But for um, whether it's the family system using alcohol in a way that's harmful or just simply individuals who are struggling with their own use of drugs or alcohol, it's just very challenging to be in an environment where um, they feel as if they cannot participate or perhaps they feel strange or awkward or out of place or, um, you know, and then yet other reasons, you know, not, you know, many families and most, I should say, almost all families have some degree of conflict or tension in relationships. And so those things become more pronounced when people get together 
and um, spend time together around the holidays. And um, they become triggers for people to drink uh, or to use. So um, it's important as individuals are trying to understand use that is harmful or addictive for themselves, what are the triggers that tend to bring me back to, to feeling an urge or a craving to use? Craving can be more physical, but an urge can involve quite a few psychological and social triggers. So the holidays become uh, a flashpoint or a trigger point for those things. What I hear from you is, and I hear from pretty much everybody that I interview on the psychologists and spiritual teachers, emotions and feelings. I wonder why do we manage to escape these strong feelings so much instead of listening to them and pausing and kind of addressing them in a healthy way. It's fascinating how so many of us do that as a habit. And then with that in mind, the question for you is, have you seen this in your practice and from your experience, have you seen this to be the cause or perhaps one of the the causes within so many other causes there might be for addiction? But would you say that trying to escape emotions, strong emotions being the main reason why some people, and especially young people, get addicted? Absolutely. I mean, it may not be the source of the addiction, but it may likely be the initial source or lever that pushes me toward use in a way that um, gives me relief from emotions that feel overwhelming or I have difficulty understanding. Um, emotions play a pretty big role around addiction. Um you know, the use of chemicals in particular um, or substances typically causes my emotions to be either blunted or flattened to a degree where I'm I'm not experiencing or aware of my emotion or my emotions feel somewhat out of control and, and highly, you know, too, too expansive. Um, I would also say just in general to your earlier comments about emotion, I don't know. And, you know, cultures and societies differ from one another, right? So masculinity for myself and growing in the United States and um, uh, Chicago and the particular family I have. And, and so how are emotions um, viewed versus experienced in other cultures? I know there's a great, you know, it's very dynamic and a lot of variance there. But um, I don't, you know, speaking for myself and, and my own background, I don't know if we're really always properly taught or um, allowed to um, experience a, a full range of emotions and then like what's the role or the value they play um, and so fear plays an important you know adaptive factor in my life it keeps and protects me from harm you know I mentioned earlier sadness is an indication of the things I value in life that might be at risk anger is a way of finding strength and energy to, um, you know, promote and seek justice and correct, you know, something that might be um, wrong or harmful. So um, obviously those things become disordered and, and um, but there's just so much there. And aside from addiction, in terms of our ability to really allow ourselves to experience the full range of emotion, um, to allow others that we care about to do so, you know, I think of um, you know, my children, you know, it, it pains me if I hear, you know, my youngest daughter, um, if I hear her sadness, you know, and I have to mentally restrain myself from wanting to shut that down versus like honor that space for her. So, um, you know, do we allow each other, much less ourselves, to feel a full range of emotion, which is part of the full experience of being human and living life? That's just a big question way beyond addiction. I think that's just a human question that we have a lot to learn to grow and opportunity to, 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 to find there. I know you mentioned early the healthy use of alcohol. So what would that be for those <laughs> listening? A loaded question, and I'll probably get in, in trouble, I suppose, if you know, with certain groups. Um, I mean, from a from a chemical, you know, from the chemical structure of, of alcohol, um, there are you know, there's no sort of nutrient value, you know, when, when alcohol is metabolized, for example, in the system, it's, it's all, um, there, there's the, the body doesn't retain some aspect of that for a nutritional value. I'm not a physician, so I don't want to speak out of scope. I know that, you know, in terms of studies that might suggest 
very limited use of alcohol has some particular health benefits. Um, I'm not really concerned about drinking in general as much as I'm concerned about trying to help and treat and support individuals where it's really become a disordered part of their lives that is generating brokenness in relationships, a loss of control, um, sort of a disconnection from themselves, from others, from their sense of God, if that's part of their their framework of, of an orientation of, of, of understanding the world. Um, and so yeah, that, that becomes a tricky and controversial question, you know, so I, you know, uh, aside from, you know, so I, I, I think, you know, there's a, people can think of it on a continuum, right? I can use a medication as prescribed um, that I receive. I can use a medis- medication that's um, uh, sort of contrary to the prescription, and it may have a harmful effect. It doesn't necessarily mean I have um, an addiction, you know, so you can use, you can move from use to misuse. Um, but if I'm using that medication or if I'm using that substance pretty much to manage every day and, and that becomes a central focal point of my life, I need this, like there's a sense of survival around this. Um, there's a sense of preoccupation, the control issues are present that we mentioned before. It's starting to affect and harm my body, my mind, my relationships. Um, my emotions. Um, and I really feel like I can't stop. Um, I can't control this. You know, that's, that's, um, that's, then we're in, you know, the, the territory of addiction. And so, um, I think working compassionately with individuals to try to understand the differences along the lines of that continuum from use to misuse to addiction is important. Um, you know, there are differences between substances too, in terms of their impact on the body and how people become, you know, how many people become addicted. And um, there's a lot to talk about there in terms of the research, but excuse me, um, um, you know, as Wellbridge, we're most concerned with really helping people who have reached that point where um, they recognize or the people who care for them recognize that um, something needs to change because they want their loved one back or they want their, their, their true self back and it's been lost. And, um, uh, you know, misconstrued by by the use of these things. And so we want to try to help them find their way. Fair enough. I understand where you're coming from. So the focus, uh, your focus is different. Yeah. I guess I asked the question because I don't engage with alcohol in my life. I never, voluntarily, I would never do it. Yeah. But then my husband, he likes drinking red wine with pasta dish when we have some foods, not, not every day. And that to me... It feels like it's healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't have a whole glass. I can't have it anyway, but right. I can become dizzy. But then he pours like one glass and just half, and then I have less than half, and he has some. But I also noticed that when he's stressed and he perhaps needs a conversation more than alcohol, he goes for that in a sense of even coming up with the, the, a dish that would go, because we have certain dishes that go with red wine. He would suggest all of a sudden to have that dish, and I already know that that's the reason why. Wow, it's, um, I see the way you are kind of making that observation, use, misuse, and then addiction. I'm just very careful with that, and my concern is that If I was not around my husband and he went through a very traumatic situation, lost a loved one all of a sudden or something, that would be his medication in a way. He would go for alcohol. So that's one of my concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully not. I I think, you know, someone uses something to change their mood one time, it may or may not be particularly harmful, but um, if you use that repeatedly and it becomes a pattern, then that becomes the well-worn path toward coping with that particular stressor or emotion or condition. Um, you know, when I was a, you know, you think of a path in the forest, you know, it's a well-worn path. It's easy to tread and you're going to go, if you've ever gone off the path in a dense forest, it can be very challenging <laughs> to do that well, right? I mean, there's thorns and bristles and there's no, and, and obstacles. Um, so when it comes to coping with the more challenging aspects of life, the more that becomes a deep-seated pattern. And then if you get hooked physiologically, and um, that becomes then 
kind of combine like this psychological urge combined with a physiological craving to use, it can just become so overwhelming for people, but it, it, it typically doesn't happen overnight, but it's, I can see why you're concerned if, if, if you're, you know, if that appears to be the trajectory or a potential pathway. So another curious question, gosh, this one, it's alcohol, the drug of use of most people at Wellbridge from your experience in this field. Or it's a different kind of drug. I would love to know that too. Yeah. So in my experience, um, over the last, um, certainly substance use treatment, specific treatment in the last, you know, decade plus, um, alcohol far and away is typically the, you know, it's usually 60 to 70% of the population. That's the primary concern. Uh, it varies, you know, where sometimes people are using alcohol plus other substances or, primarily using a substance and sometimes engaging in alcohol it can be one or the other but i'd say 70% on average of patients that's their primary concern wow chris yeah i didn't want to hear that oh. uh yeah because it's legal right so yeah. that's easy access sometimes. it's legal there's social you know we're socialized to view it as highly acceptable um very uh, to the legal point it's very accessible not only acceptable but accessible for people um And, um, yeah, it just, um, it's also, you know, if, if I use, um, you know, certain, you know, powerful opiates or opioids, um, and I, I use those regularly, the, the path toward, um, addiction and the path toward negative consequences can come more rapidly or with a great level, a much greater degree of lethality, much quicker, quicker in my life. Um, you know, my, my likelihood of dying sooner and in a, in a terrible way is just feels more pronounced and alcohol has a typically, unless you're involved in, you know, a terrible auto accident or some other accident related, um, illness. But if I'm going to develop an illness physically, physically over time in my life with alcohol, it just takes more time. So our sense of, The, the danger, our sense of risk, our sense of the, the consequences um, early when we still have a sense of agency or control is, is much more muted and um, mitigated by the time frame. So it's a challenge. Yeah, it saddens me to hear that because it is legal, accepted, accessible, as you said. Yeah. So that makes the problem much bigger, too. So what is your message at the level of, I know I'm not political and I, I try not to talk about politics here, but what is your message for the leaders, let's say, yeah, I have to say it that way, for the leaders of this country, of the United States? What is your suggestion or advice? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I would say I'm appreciative and grateful for some of the legislative changes that have been made in the recent years and decades um, or decade relative to parity for substance use and mental health. It wasn't that long ago where these were conditions that were allowed to be excluded by payers and health benefits or, um, you know, so, so care has been expanded in recent years for these conditions. And I think that's really important. And I think rec recognition ought to be given for the work that's been done. I think there's always opportunities for um, additional changes that make access for um, substance use and mental health treatment um, easier and um, just more accessible uh, for individuals. Access is, you know, there was a, the Surgeon General's report from 2017, not that long ago. I mean, a long, you know, a number of years back now, but really not that long ago, identified, I think, one to maybe two individuals who need treatment in this country for substance use disorder actually get, get treatment. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. It could be funding and, and, and a number of things, but there's also such a tremendous amount of stigma around um, addiction. So anything elected officials can do to um, uh, create laws and legislate um, in a way that um, removes barriers, reduces stigma, um, and allows people to just receive care in ways that they might receive care for other uh, common medical problems is is really, really important. Um, we've come a long way, and yet there's still a lot of barriers and a lot of stigma um, relative to the condition. Right. Yeah, that's another sad news. But thank you for saying that, too. I guess I was hoping, I don't like 
to hope, <laughs> but I was wishing to hear from you from the perspective of prevention. What can we do as leaders to minimize the consumption of, of alcohol? It was legal at some point, right, Chris? Alcohol, from what I, I, I was told, and then became legal. Yeah, there was a period of prohibition in the United States from approximately 1919 to 1932, if I have my dates correct, in which alcohol was um, was uh, was banned and was illegal, referred to as prohibition in the United States. But um, it, 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 ne- it wasn't necessarily effective. Uh, people found ways, I'm not a historian, but um, it, it actually exacerbated a number of problems. And so that was reversed. But I, when, I, when I think about prevention, I mean, you can a- attempt to address the problem directly. Um, but I think there are a lot of other things that might be more intuitive and less obvious or less, I, I guess, less um, more indirect versus directly related. I mean, you mentioned earlier, made the statement about the power of unconditional love and how that make a difference in the world. So um, creating, so anything we can do to provide and create healthy families for children to thrive and, you know, trauma, we haven't talked about this yet today much, but um, trauma plays a huge role in, um, uh, you know, sort of the etiology or the origins of substance use and mental health concerns. So I think um, creating safe places for children and for families, um, I think um, addressing this from the point of view of uh, who we might become and the benefits that we might and the wellness we might experience as if we pursue um, things outside of substances, um, is also a really positive message. You know, I, I grew up in the, the 80s and I don't, you know, you, I know you, you mentioned living abroad, um, you know, having, living in different countries internationally. In the 80s, there was a commercial, you know, drug awareness campaign, you know, where they crack an egg into a frying pan. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And it's, um, I don't know if you're familiar, but. Yes, I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it uh, you know, not, my point is not to question the merits of, of that approach as much as just recognize that's an approach that says, you know, if you use drugs, you're going to be harmed, you're going to die, you're going to get hurt. I think one of the things we've found in working with children and adolescents in schools is kind of focusing more on the positive aspects of what you can attain, who you might be, who you might become, um, the benefits of wellness and health. So I think that's a... Um, you know, choosing from a positive place versus a negative consequential place. The other thing that is important, um, and, you know, it's been a few years since I've been as focused on adolescent care, but um, social norming or what is socially normative and making that clear for students is really important. So for, you know, oftentimes adolescents have the perception that everyone uses drugs, everyone uses substances. I'm weird. I'm odd. um, I'm different if I don't. Um, but actually, if you look at what's socially normative, the vast majority of adolescents, uh, you know, the majority of adolescents are not engaging in regular substance use, you know, so helping people to understand that I can be who I am and make healthy choices or, or have a particular lifestyle free of substances is um, is actually socially normative. I'm not somehow the only person not engaged in this. So anyway, I'll go back know, circle back to your unconditional love comment and um, keeping trauma, more love in and, and less trauma and keeping trauma out. And that'll make mm. a huge difference right there. That's a beautiful message that I needed to hear now from you and my audience too, right? That's the focus of what I do, self-love. But I know it starts with us. So it's really, it would be much more complicated to try to pass that on, to love somebody else unconditionally if we have not been practicing that ourselves. I couldn't agree more. Therapeutically, I used to really try to help people to develop a sense of self-compassion. And it was always striking to me, and I do it myself, I'm sure, but, um, you know, the ability to have compassion for others while at the same time sometimes having the inability to to share the same 
compassion for oneself and to be so harsh or judgmental towards oneself. I do think it's important to begin with oneself in terms of love and compassion. And from there, there's there's tremendous possibility. Thank you so much, Chris, for that message. Thank you for being open to these questions, uh, for being here today, for your presence and for the wisdom that you share and the work you do, of course, that's very close to my heart. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. If life had one purpose, one purpose only, what would that be? Um, it's a wonderful question. Um, I don't, wow. I'll just come with the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, some, it, when I read something, I keep a book of, of just handwritten quotes of things that feel meaningful to me. And on when I first started doing that a number of years back, I, I, there's a quote on, on one of the first pages I wrote, you know, that says, um, live in such a way so that when you die, your love continues to grow. And um, it sort of, uh, I, I think it has capacity both for the time and the space that I um, I have on the earth to both experience love um, or receive as well as give love, but um, live in a way where that legacy then continues as well generationally and, and, and to the world around me. So, um, I don't know. I, I, it, it's a, it's a big question, you know, um, but I think that's an important way to think about it. Yes. And that's a big, beautiful answer. Love. Yeah. That would be my answer too. <laughs> Love unconditionally. I would add that word for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris, again. And before we say goodbye for today, where can we find more information about you, your work, services, and future projects? Thanks for asking. Very simply, I would direct people to go to wellbridge.org. Uh, it's one word, wellbridge.org. Yes, I'll have that link on your podcast profile. Thank you again, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Chris. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Christopher and his work, please visit wellbridge.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.